Leviticus 18 forbids the worship of the pagan god Molech. Now Molech was the god of the Ammonites, and his name is likely a combination of two Hebrew words, one for king and the other for shame. So he was seen as the ruler of shameful sacrifice. Now worshiping Molech was not just simply building a statue and bowing down to it. No, there were actual sexual rituals and even children were sacrificed. It is believed that idols of Molech were giant metal statues of a man with a bull's head. Now each statue had a hole in the abdomen and possibly outstretched forearms that made a kind of ramp into the hole. Now a fire was lit in or around the statue and babies then were placed in the statue's arms or in the hole. When a couple sacrificed their firstborn, they believed that Molech would ensure financial prosperity for the family and for future children. Wow. Can you believe that people's hearts were so hardened? But then again, if we look at our culture, how many people sacrifice their babies today in the womb? Well, anyways, Molech was not just simply limited to the Canaanites. In North Africa, Molech was renamed Kronos, who eventually migrated to Greece, where his mythology grew into becoming a titan and actually the father of Zeus. Now, even though the worship to Molech was forbidden to the Israelites, they still built altars and places of worship for Molech. Even Solomon, who was the wisest king, he was swayed by this cult. Now, they worshipped Molech and pagan gods until the exile, where they were removed from the promised land and were forced to live in Babylon for 70 years. When they later returned to the promised land, they remembered that pagan worship is why they were exiled. So, they actually banned pagan worship like they were supposed to do all along, like it says in Leviticus 18. So, there you go. A little bit about Molech worship, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we thank you for Arizona right now. We thank you for the beautiful weather. We thank you that we can come into your house on a Sunday night and just dig into your word. As we go through different things tonight, though, Lord, it, it, it's a challenge as we listen to your law. And maybe it's only a challenge today, Lord, because we live in such a, a weird culture that says up is down and down is up, and it supports things that you say are clearly wrong. And, and that puts a stress on us, Lord, to choose between your word and sometimes relationships in our life. I just pray as we go through this, though, we would have this question that resounds in the background, who do we love most? Lord, as we pray, we know it needs to be you. And so help us hear your truth, help us understand your ways, but most of all, help us love you as we go through this life. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So we pick up in Leviticus 18. We're still there, but we're getting closer to the end. So is it, everybody know everybody's excited about that. But today we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'm going to start off with some statements. One of the first statements I want to give you is simply this, that while many of the sacrificial and priestly laws were fulfilled in Christ, and, and while Christ's teaching and, and also Peter's vision that he had said that uncleanness is a thing of the past, right? It's, it's no longer a deal because what makes us unclean is what comes out of our hearts, Right? So while those things are things that we've studied already in Leviticus that are no longer binding on us today, we learn from Acts that there's certain things that still are, and we find them in Leviticus 17, 18, 19, and 20. In Acts 15, it says this. This is Paul in the council of Jerusalem after meeting for a while because so many of the, the Jewish Christians were saying, no, we still got to do all this stuff, right? It's in God's word. We still got to do all this stuff. 
And they had a big council and they said that obviously Christ had fulfilled certain things. They were talking a lot about priestly laws and, and some of the, the civil laws. And, and they came up with this solution for all the Gentile churches. In Acts 15, 20, it says to abstain from things polluted by idols. We talked about that last week. To, to abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain from eating meat with the lifeblood still in it. And from drinking blood. And we talked about the blood aspect last week, and we just kind of began this discussion on sexual immorality. But the thing I guess I want to highlight first and foremost is that this stuff, even by the early church in the New Testament, was considered binding on all new Christians. He was talking about this section of Leviticus, all that preceded, been fulfilled or, or erased by Christ's teachings, right? In the sense that it helps us understand the New Testament, but it's something that we don't have to do but these sections, the early church says, are still valid, still important. And you would add to that the moral law as well. Second statement I want to make is that when it comes to unthoughtful sexual unions, this is God's will. If you ever wondered if, if God speaks to our sexual culture today, yes, yes, he does. And it's found in these pages. It's found all the way through the New Testament. God has a very clearly says yes to some things and very clearly he says no to others. And it doesn't matter if both parties are consensual. And it doesn't matter if both parties say they love each other. And it doesn't matter if the whole of society has gone and pursued these things. Very clearly, God says, this is wrong, this is detestable, right? This is an abomination, he uses, a very strong, repulsive. It's like we're using the word repulsive. He's saying, these are the things I hate. And he goes on, and we'll study it in the next chapter. He said, these are the reasons that I gave you the Canaanite land in the first place. These are the things they were doing that so made me sick that I, they, the land vomited them up and I dictated that they would be destroyed and that's why you're in this land to begin with. These things I hate. Now, and I'll give you one more. When it comes to unlawful sexual, oh, I guess I just did that one. Okay, so the third one is this. We are to fear, love, and trust God. Right? That's, what, that's what God calls us to do. We, we trust that his ways are the right ways. Right? Even when we don't understand always. We, we trust that his ways are the right ways. We fear right, the consequences that come from following a different path. God says they're going to happen. They're complicating your life. They're difficult. They're destroyers. And we love him through showing our obedience. All things are part of what he calls us to be as Christians. To fear, love, and trust him. So when it comes to some of these things that we'll be discussing in a second, one of the questions that it just begs is this. When I hear God say one thing and I see our culture doing another and maybe I'm drawn to the culture, whatever the deal is, in sympathy or in action or whatever, the question becomes, whom do I love the most? Whom am I going to serve? Is it going to be God's truth? Or is it going to be culture? And I'll tell you where this gets muddy as you go through life when it affects family members, they pursued a different way. You know, the only thing God says is okay, right, in, in terms of sexual stuff is within the marriage. He said, I designed marriage for this very reason. If you're married, go guys, right? I mean, I want you to enjoy this. It's an amazing blessing. It's an amazing gift from God. But everything outside of that, outside of that union, God says is, is, is no bueno. It's, it's not a good thing. But when it affects family and we have kids living together, or we have kids that are pursued a homosexual lifestyle, or we have kids doing other kinds of things, maybe just having sex before marriage, and, and you know it's happening in a prevalent way in our culture today. God says one thing, but our care, our love for our family sort of makes us choose. 
And we have a choice either to choose God's truth and to share truth and love with our family, or we have a choice to love our family more and to start distancing ourselves from God's word. And if you've seen people in your life, you know they've done this very thing. So when we listen to these things, very clearly, number one, this is God's truth, his will. Number two, God, we hear in our culture today, God is just love today. Well, he is just love. Let me ask you this. Is it loving for a parent to have kids and have no rules? What do you think? Is that what love looks like? No rules? Do whatever you guys want. I'm always going to be here to forgive and love you. It's all good. No. God is love. He's the perfect parent. He's the perfect father. And he wants desperately for you to have not only a trip to him to be with him in heaven for eternity, but he also cares about your life now, that you mature in him. But when all possible, that you be blessed from knowing him in this life, that we would receive peace in the midst of chaos, right? That we'd feel, have hope in the midst of just, ugh, in our life. That, that we'd realize forgiveness, that we'd realize strength, all these things he gives us to help us through life. So I want you to view this as a context, because I think in life, this becomes very applicable in our world today. Whom will I choose to love? And, and, and there's a second question here too. Do I trust God truly? Uh, there was a, I forget the name of the Bible study, but one of the things that it says is, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Yeah, I love that tagline. Do you really trust God? Because there's things in here that are countercultural today that will ask you to trust him even when you might not understand. But he does it because he sees things. He knows how you're wired. He knows how you're made. He knows what's good for you. And he's designed these laws always to protect you. Not to make you jump through hoops, but to protect you. Do you trust him even when you don't understand? I mean, again, these are hard things in Scripture, right? Whenever you're confronted by the law. In the New Testament, Jesus works in so much stuff. Either everybody's messed up, right? And we go, oh, we can't do any of it. And so we're like, okay, it's okay to talk about the law. And that. Or he so wraps it up with his forgiveness that you're like, I'm a horrible person. Jesus loves me. But when you're just confronted with the law as such, do I love him most? Do I trust him most? Last week we talked about incest, I guess to conclude, made it very easy because even in our culture today, we're not pro that at any level. Although, if it's consensual and they love each other, in our culture today, we'd say, well, it's not what I would do. Pretty gross. There's genetical things, right, that are going on. But I'm okay, you're okay, is what our culture would say today to them. But today we're going to go on and talk about some other things. And in verse 19, we pick up in chapter 18, verse 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Uh, I read commentary after commentary, and there was uh, little understanding of why God has this, right? Other than that, it allows one to come into contact with the blood, which we talked about last week. And that contact, remember when the, the, the gals would have kids, they were required to spend seven days or it was longer than that, depending if it was a boy or a girl, in uncleanliness right outside the camp right, until they would finish up or whatever. And then after that period of time, they could go in. And it was just contact with the blood. And, I, and again, keeping consistent with that all the way through, God says, I just don't want you to do that. In verse 20, it says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Um, in other words, adultery is bad. I want you guys to have sexual union. I do, but only in the context of marriage. That's why we get married in the first place. One woman, one man for eternity right, or until you die, right? I mean, that's what I want. And that the children born to that would be blessed with a man and a woman, a father and a mother who bring very distinct and special things to that family. 
Super important that we get that. And so he says, any other kind of union is called adultery. Go through this in confirmation a little bit, but does that mean that the high school kids that aren't married and, and kind of exploring that, that they're sinning and committing adultery? Yeah, it does. Or how about the seniors that are, have lost their spouses and they don't want to get married again or whatever, and they, they're, having, they're exploring that kind of area. Is that still sin? It's still outside of wedlock, isn't it? It's still not the way God designed it. It's still not giving that security to that relationship. Remember, all these things are designed to strengthen the home, to, to help kids and people grow up in a home that not only fears the Lord, but fears the parents in the sense that loves the parent. Fear, love, and trust God, right? Fear, love, and trust your parents. I get it. Well, that's a segue. Okay, another one. Uh, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And Moloch's an interesting thing, and my kind of kind of alluded to it a little bit. It was a horrible, horrible idol that people would worship, and they would worship him for, in various ways. One of it was a whole sexual temple prostitute thing that was going on, and, and they did, felt like if they did that, it would spur the rain and all sorts of stuff that were associated with that. They would give their kids because they thought that it meant prosperity and future blessing upon their home, and they would kill their kids. It's an interesting stat. Mike was kind of excited the other day, although kind of not excited at the same time. He said that there was only 700,000 abortions this year in America. It's under a million. Woohoo, right? No, that's horrible still. It does say that our culture is turning away from that practice. It does say that even in the midst of political streaming where they say that, oh no, it's all good, but that people are turning away from it probably because of the ultrasounds and the fact that you can see that the kids are living. But, but just very plainly, isn't that sacrificing your kids at the idol of yourself? Convenience? Selfishness just is. So we do the same thing, except there's no promise. Well, I guess there's the promise of prosperity in your mind if you think, oh, if we don't have the kids, we don't have their expenses. The reality is that people are still doing this very practice today, but for, for more selfish motives than ever before. Gus says, I hate it. You should not lie with a male as with a woman. That is an abomination. Abomination, again, is a word for repugnant. I hate this. Again, if you ever wonder if homosexuality is in the Bible, it's in the Bible six different places. If you want a very clear depiction of it, Romans 1, New Testament, is a very clear explanation of why he hates it. But it's a perversion. He talks about that in Scripture. And, and just flat out, he says, this is a consequence of your sin. I turned you over to this abominable act. God hates it. And I know in our culture today, we're, we're supporting this in every possible way. We're, we're, we're having parades and we're saying it's okay. This sin is no longer sin. Woohoo, let's have a party. But God's will is still, still clear. And I'll tell you, even I guess as we address this one, there's a, a saddening in the heart, isn't there? Because there's people that you know have gotten caught up in it. And it doesn't mean that we can hate them and it doesn't mean we can judge them. It's not God's call to us. But what is his call is to love them back. To love them and to show them that we care, but also to share the truth that God's got a better way. That while we love you, we don't, we don't encourage what you're doing, right? But it's sharing truth and love. And in our society today, we've so convinced ourselves that we've got to be either or. Either we've got to be all in or we've got to be all out. Either we judge you and say you're going to hell or we... Pretend nothing's going on. 
Again, if you're a parent, you know how to discipline kids. You know how to love these people, these little kids that you love. You know how to tell them that they're doing something wrong, but you still love them. In our house, we, we would spank the kids when they were little. Don't anymore because it doesn't work. But, but, the re- <laughs> but the reality is we would spank them. And, and I would go in and i say, you know why I have to do this? And I trained them good. They said, yes, because God told you to help us learn right from wrong. You know, I'm like, yeah. But the reality is, but the reality is, I, I don't like to do this. I hate this. I, I would so much rather have you just done the right thing. But I, I need you to learn that this isn't okay. And, and that it breaks my heart as I do this. And I just remember swatting them on the, the behind, and they start crying, and, and then they just reach out and they hug me. And I'd hug them back, and we'd both be crying, right? But, but the reality is, truth and love, even in the most desperate of times, You know how to love your kids. You know how to love your siblings. You know how to love your neighbor. You do because you've done it before, but somehow we've convinced ourselves that it's got to be either or. It doesn't. I love you, and this is the truth. I want to see you in heaven one day. God's got a better way that is less complicated, that is less destructive towards your life. And already they're starting to have some studies coming out about these kind of relationships and they paint a grim picture of loneliness and, and disease and, and, and continual heartbreak. And the kids now are having support groups that are coming from these things because they were missing a key elemental part. They just had one of the either moms or dads and they were missing the other one that adds something to that kid and the way that they're formed and the way that they're shaped. So God says, do not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then he says, you shall not lie with any animal. Okay, this is important. And so you make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall a woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. It doesn't even seem like it should have to be said. But all these things are what the nations were doing that God displaced. These were the reasons. I had a professor one time who said, these are the nation killers. You ever wonder what kills the nations? You know, God very clearly in Scripture gives like 10 or 12 things that kill nations, and these are one of them, or these are some of them. These are what they were doing, that the land even vomited them out because it couldn't stand it, right? These are why I gave you the land in the first place. If you go back to these practices, Scripture will testify, I will displace you. Interesting, Mike said at the end, they figured out that the reason God displaced them was because of the idolatry. Wow, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Yeah, that was good, right? They should have maybe listened the first time. But isn't that the way we learn too? You got to try every bad avenue, every wrong avenue, get hit over the head with the two by four, and then we go, oh, maybe I shouldn't keep doing this. This seems to be a more painful way. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all the, these, the nations I am driving out before you became unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. And so it's not just for the Israelites, anybody in your borders. These are things to avoid. These are the things, the reasons I displaced the nations. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land become unclean, lest the land vomits you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that were before you. 
For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from amongst the people, in other words, killed. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs. You notice he says abominable quite a bit right there. It's a detestable, repugnant term. Customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now one of the things we know from Scripture is that God is not changed like shifting shadows, Right? That what was true 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, is still true today. And so even though our culture changes from year to year to year, one of the constants about God is that he does not change. And there's a goodness to that. That means his promises endure forever. His care for you endures forever. His love for you endures forever. There's not a fresh new wind blowing in that somehow changes all of Scripture to fit our current wants and fads. So he's a God that stays consistent. And again, as we listen to this and as we think about relationships in our life and we think about the stuff that's going on in our society, God just says, do you love me most? And that do you trust that the reason I gave you these things in the first place is because I've got a better way. I want to protect you. I care about you. I know what you're made of. I know what you, how you operate. I know what's best for you. Or do we love our relationships and our life more? And say, well, you know what we should do? We should pick and choose from the Bible. I like this and I don't like this. He goes on to chapter 19, which is kind of a, like a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Speaking to the fact that the moral law is still in, in, in play. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregations of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In other words, what he's saying is, I want you to be holy just like me. It should be one of your markers. It should be one of the things that people know you by. Not that you're sinless, but that you're trying, Right? The Christians of all people should be known for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for I'm sorry. So I was talking to a gal before service and she works at a cafe and she says, man, Sundays are rough. All the Christians come in after church and they're just so mean. <laughs> Nothing like a beautiful testimony about the love of God, right? That's horrible. I am holy, I am sinless, I am righteous, I am set apart, and I want you to be the same. People should know Christians by their love for one another, not by their judgment. By their care and their concern and their generosity, not by their selfishness. I want you to be many Christ, right, Christians. I want you to be like me. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. And so he goes right after the first and second and third commandment there. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. In other words, one of the most important things that I want you to get is to fear, love, and trust your parents, and to fear, love, and trust God. Remember the Sabbath. That's where you get all the cool stuff, the forgiveness of sins, the strengthening, the reminders, the promises. That's where you get it always. Every Sunday, it's here over and over and over because we're great forgetters. We need that. Because life is hard, we need that. And I would encourage you to do personal devotions. I encourage you to go to Bible studies to fill in the in-between so that you constantly have that flowing in so that when life hits, and it does, you have the ability to cope and you have the ability to keep moving and you have the ability to trust God's promises and find peace in the midst of the storms and all those different things. Remember the Sabbath days, right? Remember those are the days that we are to set apart not just for physical rest, but to be reconnected with Jesus. 
That's what happens in small groups. That's what happens in personal devotion. To be reconnected with his promises and the one who loves us. Why do we fear, love, and trust our parents? Because that's how we learn to fear, love, and trust God. Growing up, I fear, loved, and trusted my dad. My dad said it. I knew it was probably right, right? But I feared him too because I knew if I crossed one of his rules... I learned to spank someplace, right? You know, I mean, bad things would happen to me. I mean, it was just the way it was. I loved my dad, and never once was I ever spanked and didn't think I deserved it, okay? He quite clearly explained to me each time. You know, it was, it was, it was very educational. But the reality is, I fear, loved, and trusted him. I knew why when bad things happened. I knew why, but I also knew he loved me more than anything else, and I trusted him. And that gives me a wonderful picture of God, too. I know that when God says it, whether I understand it all or not, I can trust him. And I know when he wants me in heaven and that's his ultimate goal. And so even when I go through hard times, I can trust that somehow, some way, he'll get me to the other side. I love God. I gave my life for God, right, to serve him, but, but I love him. And one of the passions he put in my heart is to help other people get to know who he is, to get to understand how much he cares about them. I, I don't know why he's put that in my heart, but I, ever since I, I kind of grasped hold of that, I've done nothing but want other people to know. I, I do know why. When I was in high school, I had one of my best friends die. Odd thing for a high schooler to, to pass away. But again, I knew he wasn't going to heaven. It's kind of a funny thing that we know that why does the Lord door that leads, or why does the path that leads to destruction and many follow it we know people go to hell all the time those that don't believe just nobody that we know but this was somebody i knew and i couldn't go to his funeral because uh, the pastor was probably going to say he was in heaven and i i knew him really well he, he was not but i'll tell you it did something to me and, and I, i've kind of frequently talked about this there's a there's a power there's a healthiness in dealing through that reality when someone dies in your life that doesn't know Jesus to deal with the fact that they're probably not in heaven because what it does is it gives you an urgency for everybody who's left to go share with them Jesus. And so that's what I did. I went to all my friends at that time. I didn't want to be a pastor at that point, but I wanted everybody to know that Jesus was the way to heaven because I don't want another person to be in hell and be able to say to me, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? So anyway, God says to revere his mother and his father and to keep his Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. And then he says, do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any god of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. If you were in the morning service today, you learned that that's one of our biggest problems in life, right? Worshiping things other than God. It's the thing that trips us up the most, that causes the most problems in our life, that causes us to sin, loving something more than God. But it happens all the time. And we don't worship idols. And sometimes we worship self or selfishness. And that becomes more of a drive than God's truth in our lives. Sometimes it's other people that we get all caught up in and we make compromises and we do things that we didn't normally do, whether it's family, whether it's a cute girl, or whether it's, you know, whatever the deal is. And, and we start not listening to God's truth. Sometimes it's money, retirement, trips, I don't know. You name the idol and it's there. It trips us more than any. Sometimes it's just pride. I know somebody who's just having a hard time saying I'm sorry. They could fix relationships in their life right now, right in this moment. But they just can't get themselves to humble themselves enough to say sorry. It would make everything better. 
People worship at idols all the time, and God says, I hate that. Because that's the thing that leads you away from me, and I want you in heaven. And I want to safeguard against all these things that are going to lead you astray. I want to safeguard you guys from things that are going to trip you up. I want you to be with me for forever. That's my plan. I got work for you guys to do in heaven, right? So I want you to be with me. I created you to love you, he says. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord and you shall offer it so that um, you may be accepted, it goes on and talks about the peace offering and the right way of doing it. Uh, most commentators think they just kind of put that in there because they were writing to the people in this section and they wanted them to know when they could eat it and those things. In verse 9 we pick up and says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip the vineyard bare, neither shall you, you gather the, the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I, I love that this is there. I want to stretch your political thinking just for a second. I'm a, I'm a Republican, right? So, but one of the things that Republicans sometimes do wrong is we get a hardened heart toward the poor and the sojourner, the alien in our country. And I don't want to get in debate on how much we should cover, but the reality is that God says we should have a heart for the poor in our community. We should have a heart for them that takes care of them. This whole idea of not doing the corners of your field meant that one-sixtieth, that was a, a Jewish estimate, one-sixtieth of your field, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't gather, right? And that would allow the people of the land to come in and to harvest that stuff so they wouldn't starve. It was God's way of just providing for folks. And then every seventh year, you wouldn't glean any of it. You were supposed to reap double that sixth year, right? So that the Sabbath year would just be available for everybody to come and to, to eat and to store up and to sustain themselves. It, w- it was a way to care for people. And I-, I think there's a hardness of heart in so many things when it comes to politics and we just take sides and we don't think through stuff. But the reality is we should have a heart for the poor. And in churches especially, our call is to love whoever comes to our doors. And if we have means to try to help whoever comes to our doors, that should be the Christian heart as well. That if somebody we see is in need, that it spurs us to try to take care of them, right? I don't know what one sixtieth percent of your income is, but at least that part should, should be going toward helping the poor in our communities today. And I just say that because, I, I, anyway, I think our political world's a mess, and I think we have so much black and white, but there's this, this idea of, of, of helping people in dire straits to make sure there's a way for them to live. In verse 11, it goes on, it says, You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, you shall not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So don't take God's name in vain, don't steal, don't, don't bear false witness, all part of the commandments of God. These are all ways to love our neighbor. Don't do things deceitfully to others to harm them. It, it, like all these things shouldn't even need to be written, should they? Don't treat people poorly. The golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. Do you want to be lied to? Do you want to be false witnessed against? Do you want to, do you want to I, I mean, have God upset that you're taking his name in vain? I, I want to challenge you on this. I, this, lat, this taking um, so profane the name of your God, that, that was one when I was doing youth ministry that so got me because it was just so prevalent. And so I started making a deal of it, right? I mean, and every time somebody said, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, which seems like more effort, right, to be honest, I have to say that one, I would always stop and say, you can just call me Mike, 
right? I, or I would say, hey, we don't say that here. Or, or I do something to point out that that wasn't okay. God says not to do that. Stop doing it. And you know, within like a month, nobody said it anymore. And if kids would come to the group after that and they brought friends all the time, they would say, hey, don't say this. <laughs> that pastor's pretty serious about this one. Yeah, he'll stop everything. He'll call you out, you know. But, but think about why are you treating the holy, God's name, as common? Why are you inserting it in almost every other word for some people when it doesn't even contextually make sense? I mean, if you were praying, that's awesome. And maybe they are praying just weirdly, right? But the reality is we've got to stop doing that. And if you're a Christian, absolutely, I call you to today to challenge you to this. Stop blowing off his name like it means nothing. Use it in prayer. Use it in worship. Use it to call on them. Use it to, to, to remember his promises. But, but just, just don't use it flippantly as if it's nothing, and use that as a witness to those around you. And if you want a cool way to, to kind of, uh, I don't know, witness, make a deal of it yourself. My kids do that sometimes. And, and, and my oldest will tell you, man, I got all sorts of friends that they swear all the time, but they don't swear around me. Right? What a cool thing that is, that they respect my daughter enough to kind of hold their tongue when they're around her. And what does that do? We talk about being holy, set apart. Because of the respect for her, they know in just a way that she's a Christian that believes in God. And so if you just do that for me, that would be awesome, right? And you know if they have questions about God down the line, she's going to be one of the first ones they ask. There's all sorts of ways to witness to your God. It's amazing. Uh, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The, his, the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. <laughs> That's just sick and wrong. I don't know how you do that. Um, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall no, do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the, to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I'll give you one last thing to stretch your political world. I did one against the Republicans. I'll do one against the Democrats. One of the things of the last campaign is I just want everybody to give their fair share. Okay? But it was a disingenuous statement because it was punishing the rich to benefit the poor. It was just disingenuous. That's all I'm saying here. It says here, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. She'll just judge things clearly, rightly. Your fair share is everybody's paying the same percentage, right? I, I just encourage you, whatever the political talk, that you think critically about what's being said, whether you're on the left or on the right, that you think through what your political people are saying, that you just don't take everything at face value, but that you search each topic to understand what's being said. Again, these are God's will from the very beginning. These are the things that still carry on to today. These are God's will for your life to protect you. And then we'll go on next week. Oh, no, I'll finish up this part. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason frankly with your neighbor, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, I'll give you this last one. It's not okay to carry a grudge. There's nothing holy in it. There's nothing justified in it. There's nothing excused in it. There is nothing right in it. Because we're Christians. And God calls us to model forgiveness and reconciliation and love. So if you've got a, a deal with somebody and you're the wrong one, he calls you to humble yourself and go and say, I'm sorry. Period. 
I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, although, or I'm sorry, don't take it away. I'm sorry. If you want to be more specific, I'm sorry I hurt you by saying this, period. Apologize for the wrongs that you've done. Stop carrying them as if you've been justified in doing them. Apologize for the wrongs that you've done and allow God to get in there and start healing stuff. Somebody comes to you and says, I'm sorry. Say, I forgive you. <laughs> Don't look at it as a triumph. Ah, I win! <laughs> and, and hold it over their head for the next 50 years. I forgive you. And it's done. I'm going to let go. I'm going to choose to let it go. I saw your humility. I saw that you're acknowledging the wrong. That's really what I wanted all along. I'm going to release you from the offense. And if I'm still struggling, I'm going to defer the rest to God, for he is the judge, not me. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not ours. But it's just never okay. And it leads to resentment, which just eats us up inside. You know what resentment does? It lives the same event over and over and over thousands of times when it only happened once. And the reason I share this is because I meet countless people that walk around in their lives excusing their grudges, excusing why they can hate somebody. Excusing why they can just continue to avoid people in their life. Excusing why they haven't reconciled or tried to reconcile. Excusing their pride. It's not okay before God. It's one of the things we use in confirmation. If you're carrying a grudge, don't come to the altar asking for forgiveness because you're not sorry. And you despise the name of the Lord when you come forward. Stop doing that. I mean, not you guys. Other services. Right? But it's not okay to carry a grudge, and he says that over and over here. Do not hate your brother in your heart. You know how you overcome hate, resentment to somebody? You know how you do it? So the pastor's conference a few years ago in Texas, when I was there, and, and the district president at that time, we were at tables, and they were sharing this very question, how do you overcome hatred or resentment? And he shared a story. He said, my daughter was raped last year, and I, I've hated that kid. I've hated him as much as I've hated anybody in my life. And he goes, I'm a pastor, so I know that's not right, you know? So God convicted me on this. And so all I could do is I started praying for him. Sometimes I could just get his name out. But every day I would just, I would start praying for him. And then I started praying that he'd come around to know Jesus. And then I started praying for his blessing. And then I started praying for, and he said, as I was doing that, that hatred turned into pity. Pity is something we can deal with. It's a sadness of heart, but it allows us to forgive and it allows us to move on and it allows us to pray for. But this is just something that sucks our energy dry. This is something that keeps us down and, and, and messed up. But if we can move it to pity, we've been released, right? Released from all that. Freed from being in that bondage to that resentment. The way you get over hatred, the way you get over resentment is you play for that person. doesn't matter who the president is, last three or four, that uh, I've gotten an email saying that they're the Antichrist and would I pray for them. And I, absolutely, I'll pray for them. And if you're concerned about the president or the next president or the next president after that, pray for them. They need your prayers, to be honest. They need you to pray that you, you keep Satan far from them, that you would give them clarity of mind, that you would give them a, a, his Holy Spirit to help them start making good decisions. That Our presidents desperately need you in our world today because more and more of them are, are not close with him. 
So maybe you just pray that they become Christians, that they become closer with the Lord than they are today. But, but whatever the deal, he doesn't excuse this. And so he says very clearly, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin. In other words, start a reconciliation process. You've hurt me. And if you say, I forgive you, then it's their sin. If they don't say, I, uh, you know, I, or if you say, I'm sorry, and they don't forgive you, then it's their sin. If they don't say, I forgive you. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let me pray. God, we love you so much. And, and I pray tonight as we talk through some of these things that just made us think. You shared a lot of things that are very countercultural in here. Your will versus our culture's will. And I just pray as we talk through these that we would just see these obviously as your will. Ones that aren't just put down once and something we can blow off, but appear again and again throughout Scripture. For you, Lord, you do not change. But as we struggle with them, Lord, I hope it just draws us closer to you and an appreciation that you give these, these things to protect us because you love us, because you care about our lives. And because we care about the people in our lives that get caught up in these things, you call us to love them too so they can see you more clearly, so they can see our love for them even in spite of their sin, so that they get a picture of Jesus that came to seek and to save the lost. Father, give us that strength, give us that wisdom, and give us the heart to see that you love us. We pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.